AT&T ThreatTrack is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com. Hello, welcome to AT&T ThreatTrack for our July 12th, 2016. This program provides network security highlights, discussion, and countermeasures for cyber threats. Today we have a special guest, Zach Forsyth. Uh, Zach, you're the uh, Director of Product Strategy at Komodo. Tell us a little about yourself, and uh, first of all, welcome. Glad to have you here. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, yeah, I work at Komodo as a Director of Product Strategy for our boundary and perimeter products. And I spend a lot of time strategizing and working on new technologies to basically protect companies from the perimeter. And we try to do some very advanced sort of malware analytics and malware prevention out of the border to protect people. All right, very good. So uh, we look forward to talking with you a little bit later. I think we're going to be talking a little bit about ransomware, a hot topic. So uh, we'll, we'll get to that uh, just momentarily here. And. Uh, we have Matt Kaiser with us here in Bedminster. Welcome, Matt. Thanks a lot. How's it going, Brian? Good, thanks, and uh, glad to have you back. And we have uh, Stan Nurlov. Welcome, Stan. Thanks, Brian. Good to uh, have you back as well, Stan. Yeah. And I'm Brian Rexer, and we'll, uh, first of all, let's go right to it. Massive rise in ransomware, Zach. What can you tell us about it? Yeah, so I think everyone's noticed that uh, ransomware is a hot topic these days. You know, we're seeing more and more prevalence of these sorts of attacks. And we're also seeing much more sort of unique methods of infection. And we're seeing the ransomware authors themselves spending a huge amount of time and energy and resources sort of designing malware that's designed to circumvent everyone's security measures, whether they're firewalls, web filters, endpoint, you know, antivirus sort of protection. You know, they're becoming more creative in how they actually circumvent any sort of protection. And it's sort of interesting that everyone in the industry generally is using some very old sort of signature-based technology to detect ransomware. And I know later in the show we're talking about a slightly different approach to actually protecting yourself from ransomware. But it seems in the industry we're very focused on just good or bad files. There's not enough time that's really spent focusing on unknown files. And, uh, you know, you, you could sort of think about ransomware that every single piece of malware or every piece of ransomware starts off as an unknown file, right? No one in the industry knows whether it's good or bad. It could be brand new. And interestingly, recently there's been a ransomware called Server, which it actually morphs every 15 seconds. So the payload changes constantly. And that's too quick even for sort of cloud source threat intelligence or cloud antivirus to even catch up with. Because 15 seconds, I mean, they just chose that as an arbitrary number. There's no reason they couldn't make it every five seconds. Mm -hmm. So how do you keep up with that? So I think it's a bit important for the industry to actually focus a bit more on truly, you know, what is an unknown file and how do you approach unknown files? I guess you can take two postures on this sort of thing. You can have what's default allow or default deny. And default allow is what most technologies run in that mode. They basically say, if we can't detect this file as bad and we've run out of technology, no matter what it is or how advanced it is, we've run out of ways to actually detect whether this is bad, we're just gonna let this file run. And that holds true across firewalls, web filters, endpoints. 
where I think there should be a lot more focus on when you finally can't determine that this file is actually bad, what happens then? What do you do with an actual unknown? Yeah, so, you know, it's, it's interesting you point out, I might be going on just a little bit of a tangent here, but you print out, you're pointing out sort of what I would describe as an architectural flaw in our strategy, that is, to be even trying to make some decision about good versus bad, or rather than you know, thinking in terms of what we really do know to be good. Um, you know, I think there have been some technologies that have tried to take a look at um, you know, at least registering uh, executables, for example, to make sure that they're actually good. And I'm kind of wondering, do you have, can you make a little bit of a comparison contrast with like how it is, exists in the mobility world today versus how it exists in, I'll say, the traditional PC world and why it, uh, perhaps the PC world is so, so easily targeted? Which is really tough. In, in the mobile world, there's a little bit of control there from Apple and Android, obviously, because they control the App Store where you're supposed to get your applications. And they're the gatekeepers, essentially, of what's supposed to be good or bad. Although in the past, we've still seen malicious files end up in the Apple App Store, even though they're supposed to be the ones doing the betting to say that this is actually a known good file. Right, right. Um, the problem on the PC world is that it's totally unstructured. Uh, you can get applications and programs from anywhere, and you truly don't know whether that application is actually representative of the real application itself. I mean, you can do some things like looking at the code signing certificate for that actual application to make somewhat of a determination of whether this is a known good software publisher. But, you know, we all know that uh, given a chance, any end user is going to go out and download all the latest applications and try to install them on their system. So there's no real chance there to say, you know, we're always going to have good versus bad files. I think the industry really needs to wake up and say, look, let's just all admit that no matter what detection methodologies we use, there's this tiny little gap that's left over where we truly can't say that we can basically give every single file a rating. So once you take that position and you say, okay, there's always going to be some unknowns, it puts you in a really powerful position to then decide what do you do with the unknown. And that's really where the whole security gap lies right now. And it's where ransomware authors and any malware author that's really putting a lot of time and effort, they're looking to exploit that exact gap in the architecture. Yeah. You know, I think you perhaps are making a good point here in that um, one of the strategies that can come of this is to you know, once you recognize something and basically have classified it with some confidence that it's, say, better, you know, perhaps good or at least not bad, it gives an opportunity to perhaps relax a little bit about those files and then focus the resources or focus the energy on analyzing the ones that you're less sure about. And, um, you know, I think uh, what's become somewhat popular is sort of the sandboxing is to, you know, be able to fire or execute unknowns or suspicious files in an environment where you can observe what's going on and get some idea whether it do, you know, exhibits some of the bad behaviors, registry changes and things like that that might be suggestive that, of something you need to be concerned about. Do I have it about right? Yeah, so we utilize sandboxes very, very heavily and we process millions of files a year. Um, the interesting thing with sandboxes is that even with all sorts of automation and sort of machine learning within our sandboxes, we can only classify about 92% of all files that come into our sandboxes. Mm -hmm. And then the other 8%, we actually have to send to expert human analysis. 
So it's quite a large number where you're thinking about being able to sort of scale this sort of process up mm-hmm. and where you can provide a verdict or a rating for 100% of all files. Because if you're not doing that, then your sandbox is really exactly the same as the other methodology, which are trying very hard to reach 100% detection, but they're leaving that gap. So if your sandbox also leaves the same gap, it's really just a slightly different technology that's you know, giving you the same end result, essentially. Mm-hmm. Well, and I guess uh, perhaps another point buried into your, in, in your statements there, you know, it doesn't really matter if you get 90% correct when that, you know, if, if only a single file gets in and becomes a, uh, you know, a vantage point in an enterprise, it perhaps is the, if it doesn't get recognized mm-hmm. at some point to uh, help protect against it, that ultimately becomes the, uh, you know, the problem. So uh, it's not enough to be pretty good. You have to be almost perfect. And that, that 90% that you're able to get, that last remaining 10% is still a, a non-known quantity that keeps changing. It's not like right. we're, we've, we've seen all the malware we're ever going to see. You're always going to be chasing that tail. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, Zach, as I think you said, there are a lot of folks that are kind of doing research in these areas, and some are more sort of production ready. Some of them are a little more, you know, we'll call it university level type things. Mm-hmm. So perhaps it's a good time to transition to you, Matt, on this next topic, which is... Uh, you know, a very similar uh, theme, mm-hmm. but uh, perhaps not quite ready for prime time. Well, this is interesting. Uh, a team of researchers from Univers- University of Florida and Villanova uh, have released um, a paper, mm-hmm. and I believe they've done a proof of concept of this idea as well. The concept is called CryptoDrop, and it's a means of detecting ransomware by its behavior rather than doing signature-based analysis. Um, the same kind of stuff that I think we were just we were just speaking about. Right. The general idea is to take a look at the file system changes, and right now they've done it only for Windows. But a process starts up, and it decides it, it starts making changes in the file system. It starts mm-hmm. encrypting them. It starts encrypting lots of lots of directories at once, or maybe it's looking for only certain types of files. There are certain patterns that different ransomware takes, and they're very different from the way that are normal most normal programs will operate. And I'll get back to that in a second. (laughs) CryptoDrop keeps an eye on these sorts of file system changes. When it detects that, it's hit a certain threshold. It says, whatever you're doing, you got to stop. Kills the process, alerts the user, which is great. I mean, like again, it it prevents, you don't have to rely on that sort of signature base. As as much as you mutate the way that the the malware file looks in disk and on memory, it it has to do the same. The the purpose for which it's built is the very signature you're looking for, Mm -hmm. which is cool. They claim 100% true positives with this, which is, you know, impressive. If it really is malware, it's going to get caught by this. On the if other side... Ransomware. Ransomware, ransomware thank uh, you. Crypto, yeah. But on the other side, there are legitimate applications still that get shot down by this. For example, if you use GPG or any sort of on-disk encryption that you say, tell me, you know, encrypt these, these files here, mm-hmm. it will say, well, you're doing that same thing that ransomware does without the context it'll shut that down as well. And things like compression applications as well. So it's not perfect yet. Apparently there was some previous work done on Linux by a guy named Sean Williams. Uh, Crypto Stalker, I think, is that implementation. But the same kind of ideas, taking a look at the file system and seeing what's going on. I think this is really impressive. I'd love to see this implemented in you know major AV companies. If they took that and maybe mashed it up with um, application whitelisting, you know, a, a list of which applications are actually allowed to make these sorts of, you know, large changes to the mm-hmm. file system. Everything else we have to distrust. I think mm-hmm. that would be great. Yeah, sounds interesting. Zach, what do you think? I think this is a, it's a valiant effort, let's just say, but it's falling back into the same sort of detection 
and response methodology that the whole industry has been using for years and years and years. Yeah. So I can instantly think of ways to actually sort of not circumvent this technology, but um, you know, in the case where you have a piece of ransomware that is continually adjusting its payload, does that actual tool, this crypto drop tool, tool, can it actually sit there and basically keep on blocking a new process that keeps spawning child processes with different names, different signatures over and over again? Mm-hmm. And you know, can, I, can the malware get into a race condition with this actual application to see who can be the first to you know, encrypt mm-hmm. the whole hard drive one piece at a time, basically? Mm-hmm. That's right. Maybe a thousand processes, each encrypting one file isn't detectable, but one process encrypting a thousand files absolutely would be. Yeah. So that, I think that's. Uh, yeah. I think that exhibits this sort of this. This whole thing is really is an arms race. Yeah. That for every countermeasure, there's a counter to the countermeasure, right. and, uh, and and that you know it's a matter of, uh, of creativity. I was thinking actually of a, a little bit of a different strategy. You know, most of the encryption now is being done at the file system level, but what if they started scrambling sectors around the disk or something along those lines? Mm. That becomes yet you know yet another strategy that uh, that could be used. Or maybe you could take the, the the time span between those those file system actions and spread them out over a long term, and maybe right. a week from now, it finally you finally realize that all your files are encrypted and mm-hmm. it gets you now. Yeah. So there are a lot of tricks around this, and I think uh, sort of back to your original point, Zach. I think fundamentally we need to be thinking about the architecture itself and be focused a little more on making sure we understand what should be allowed, and be more prohibitive of things that are not allowed. You know, I, I think fundamentally in the security space, my personal opinion, we've kind of lost sight of the whole notion of protect first, and then use detection mechanisms as a stopgap or or a backup or a second layer of security. There seems to be a really a, f- a focus on, you know, find the bad stuff rather than prevent the bad stuff in the first place, so. Yeah, I'm actually 100% with you on that one. I think we've spent about 30 years proving that detect and respond doesn't really work. <laughs> Otherwise, there'd be no malware that works. No one would be yep. getting infected. No one would be getting breached. Yep. So we've already proven that model doesn't work. So let's go with the the models that are more focused on prevention and protection. Yeah, and, and you know, there's still a role for the detect and respond. You have to have it because there will always be things that you know aren't protected against, or you didn't even realize needed to be t- protected against. And you have to know what those things are. But ultimately, the uh, the emphasis should be start with protection and then use the uh, detect and re- and respond as a backup measure, as a verification measure, as a you know trust but verify kind of thing. So, you know, I don't, I don't mean to discount the, uh, the research being done here. I think this is a good thing as well. We, we need to tackle it in all directions. Uh, but ultimately what it comes down to is I'd like to see more research and emphasis on the prevention in the first place. So, very good. So, Stan, let's go to you. And um, we talked a little bit earlier about how sometimes things leak through the, uh, into the uh, app markets in the mobile space. and. Maybe you can tell us about the little faux pas that occurred here. <laughs> well, I think one of the most exciting things uh, that happened last week, I believe, is uh, the release of this Pokemon Go. Yep. A lot of us grew up when uh, playing Pokemon. Mm-hmm. Uh, so now this is like an opportunity to take the physical world and combine it with the thing we love, hunting for Pokemon. Uh, it's an application. I think you can get it uh, for uh, your iPhone and your uh, Android device. 
but apparently not everywhere. Mm -hmm. So you know, some of the Apple store, uh, some of the um, the application stores, uh, you're able to get them uh, in certain countries, but mm -hmm. in certain areas they haven't been released yet. So whenever that happens, when there's something that people really want, an app, but they just can't get it, they always look for alternate channels of installation. Mm -hmm. And uh, so in this case, I think the uh, some bad guys have picked up on that. And there's been a version of this uh, Android version of this uh, Pokemon Go that's been distributed, but it's a Trojanized version that all you know has a little bit of extra uh, C2 beaconing. The guys at Proofpoint, you know, found this version of it. They analyzed it. Uh, it's an interesting uh, domain that it points to. Pokemon.no-ip.org, oh, yeah. our, fa <laughs> our favorite no IP kind of domain. Dynamic DNS. Uh, dynamic DNS. It, I like that it has Pokemon in it. It's <laughs> interesting, the IP address actually resolving, was resolving to uh, uh, in uh, somewhere in Turkey. So it's an IP address in Turkey. Uh, but currently it seems like it's offline. So uh, if you have the Trojanized version, you're, you're playing the game, you're trying to connect to the, to the malicious adversary, but uh, they're not, they're not, the server is not up and running. So it's interesting, because I think it hits on a couple of things, uh, kind of like the stuff Zach, I think, even mentioned this. You know, if when people want it, you can't really, you can't really stop it. Your mm -hmm. people are going to go and try to download this thing, yeah. no matter, almost no matter what you do. Uh, so even so. if it is Trojanized. Yeah. So of course, people didn't know that, right? No. And some po folks probably wouldn't even appreciate the fact what what that means if it is. No. I think I got a question from a, um, I'll say a close friend recently. It's like, well. What does it mean when they do when they do something like? And so I had to explain. Like what does what does it mean that it's Trojanized? Yeah. yeah what yeah. does it mean that it's yeah, Trojanized? People ask yeah. me all the time. What do you mean by Trojan? Like, what is that? People who are not you know so technical. Right. Yeah. So there's still a lot of education that's needed in the general public around um, you know maliciousness of uh, of software that can exist and things around that. So you mentioned this the command and control associated with this. You, you referred to C2 is not in service, so the malware is trying to connect to it, but it, there's nothing there to really connect right, to. Right, yeah, it's being denied right now. I think uh, I took a look at a few flows here and there. It looks like basically you're getting a port unreachable message right now if, mm -hmm. you, if you try to ping that IP right. or if you try to connect So it. what we would not know is whether it had been actually taken down by folks that recognized the problem and fixed it, or maybe it's simply just not in service right now. This is one of these nebulous, or one of these uh, little, you know, question mark items that, you know, when you see something that's not in service, you don't know if it's going to go ahead and come back at some point later, or maybe the domain might get redirected to another place or something along those yeah. lines. I would suspect that it's just uh, not in service right now, based mm -hmm. on what I see. You know, the DNS name is still pointing to the IP address. It just Maybe mm -hmm. the service is down. You know, sometimes so attackers, nobody's really taken an effort to sinkhole the domain name. Yeah, it like didn't, doesn't seem like it. You know, sometimes also when you have these new kinds of uh, adversaries, like I've never seen a lot of attackers coming in from Turkey, for example, not not yet anyway. Mm -hmm. And so they're not really scaling their C2 server to handle the kind of load you might get. Might be simply 
denial exactly. of service. <laughs> yeah, they, they could have yeah. like denial of service themselves, or it could have been an experiment that they tried out and they put yeah. this application out there, and security vendors, you know, picked up on mm -hmm. it. So it's always it seems you know sometimes it's a mix. Definitely from flow analysis that I did, I didn't see a lot of uh, people trying to hit that IP address or anything mm -hmm. like that. So I don't think it's very widely used. Probably not as widely used as Pokemon Go. Like this thing is like blowing up. So right? everybody's yeah, doing their it. servers have been under pretty heavy load lately. Right, exactly. So, yeah. yeah. So, so I bet the C2 actor can relate. Go ahead, Zach. It's very, it's very easy to explain what's going on there. You know, we wake up this week, Blink 182 has a number one hit. Pokemon is the number one game that's blowing up everyone's phones. And these guys thought it was still 1999, and they've set up their servers without global load balancing, and they've never heard of AWS. <laughs> yeah. You know, Zach, you took the words right out of my mouth, because Stan was in, in, in matter sitting here talking about how they used to, you know, I, Pokemon to me was completely... <laughs> <laughs> that was about the last thing. If I, if I were to create something that nobody would be interested in, I might call it Pokemon. But oh. apparently, <laughs> apparently I missed that one. So uh, anyway. Well, don't worry. The whole IoT is still out there with uh, 1999 security bugs, too. So right, right. We'll feel wow. Thank you. So, um, so, Matt, let's go back to you here. This mm -hmm. is um, kind of an interesting one. I think it kind of points out some of the subtleties that we really have to, you know, kind of be paying attention to with all these IoT devices that are out mm -hmm. there. So, so give yeah. us a scoop. So the scoop is um, just like you said. You know, you build a device, you put certain sensors in it. You don't always think of why and how it might be used or misused. Mm -hmm. So, a, which is a very positive thing in many ways. I mm -hmm. mean, these are opportunities for app developers to to really flourish in a, sure. in a lot of, of really positive ways. But then there are the Nefarious uses. Nefarious uses, yeah. yeah. So uh, a team from Binghamton University and Stevens Institute of Technology, Go Ducks, uh, <laughs> did some research on using smartwatches, like the one you're wearing there, mm -hmm. to see if you could intercept somebody's ATM pin as it was being typed with that hand. So the whole idea is you have you know, accelerometers within the, the device. Um, mm -hmm. You go ahead and you type out your pin. Your hand is moving certain amounts. Your fingers are going up and down, depressing the keys whatever vibrations that causes that get picked up by the accelerometer. Mm -hmm. What they would do is they would, the assumption is that when you're done typing your pin, you hit the enter key. So they extrapolate backwards and say the last click is at the enter key. You have this much movement in this direction. You have clicks at this location, this location, this location. And they map that back to the, the, the actual the dimensions of the pin pad to see mm -hmm. how close they could get. They claimed millimeter resolution as to where they were able to tell where you were clicking. Yeah, that's pretty a, impressive. There's some pretty complex math in that in the paper. Mm -hmm. um, if you're into that, go ahead and read it. But uh, I had to skim over some parts. I just wanted to see what they were doing exactly based on the claims they were making. Yeah. Now, I was really interested because they mentioned the use of Bluetooth low energy as a possible vector of getting this data. So mm. assuming, you know, one of two ways, you could either infect the phone and the, the watch with some sort of pre-made app that steals this data, sits there, listens for it, and et cetera, and ships it back out, mm -hmm. or Bluetooth Low Energy, which sends the information wirelessly. And I thought the Bluetooth Low Energy one is probably the more valuable one for an attacker, if it really does work, but they didn't actually test it, and I was kind of bummed out that they hadn't. Mm. They said they could get about 97% of pins on the certain models of, I think it was Android devices are the ones they were able to test uh, within five tries. Mm. And five tries is about as much as your, your ATM will let you have before it says, uh, we're not gonna let you try that anymore. Right. Other ones they were able to get within 10, which is still pretty good. Um, mm -hmm. 
So, you know, it's, it's pretty, pretty interesting research. At this point, it's just research. No one is out there doing this yet, as far as we know. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's an interesting thing to keep an eye on. What I would recommend uh, is that people, for the time being, if they are concerned about it, use a different hand. Uh, but a you and I were hand. talking before, and you were saying that, you know, some people will go ahead and they'll type, you know, do the hunt and peck version of typing on that pad. Mm -hmm. Others will go ahead and put their hand down, cover their hand. Maybe even cover their hand and, yeah, just yeah. use the fingers to do and it. And at that well. point, there's not that much motion. I mean, you'll have clicks, unless they find a way to map fingers to vibration differences, I think that kind of defeats their, their mechanism as well. Mm -hmm. I'd be interested so, to find out. Stan, you had made a point earlier. Yeah, I think a lot of people probably, well, one thing is I don't use the hand with my watch mm -hmm. to type my pen, so that would probably defeat uh, the thing. And then, like you said about the covering your hand, that would be another thing that I personally do. I always, even from my wife. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, right, so I, yeah. Honey, <laughs> but she knows this. So, I mean, even right in certain situations, I cover my hand and I try to make as little movement as possible so right. that people behind me in line can't see uh, right. what I'm mm -hmm. typing or where my hand is moving. Because I've thought of this very often, like if you're just watching and I, a lot of people aren't careful. Sometimes mm -hmm. when I walk up to an ATM, I see people kind of like they don't cover and they just type and you can really recover their pin mm -hmm. just by watching them. So yeah, I take all that into account when I do it. Yeah, see, and, and I think that's one of the things to perhaps take into account. I mean, we're, we're getting a little off topic here, but take into account the fact that there are people with amazing powers of perception and are able to pick up on things that perhaps, you know, regular guys like me wouldn't pick up on. You, you are likely one of those folks, Stan, <laughs> where you can, you know, just kind of even out of the corner of your eye see somebody doing something and be able to reproduce that based on what they had done. And so even so, if, you know, without the watch, it's one of the things to be cognizant of that there may be uh, folks that have those, that the skill to be able to watch, you type in a password or type in a pin or something. Or even if you're not, if someone's added an extra camera to the bezel of your ATM, right. skimmers and tech like that, they mm -hmm. don't have to have somebody standing there all day. They just have to have a, a pinhole camera directly above the pin pad. Yeah, this is true. And the other thing this story made me think of was actually putting malware on your watch, which I, you know, it's possible. I never really thought about it seriously, but this would, you know, this would probably make attackers have an actual use case. Yeah. Why would I do that? Yeah. This would be one of the reasons. Oh, well, that's a good point. I'm not aware of any, um, you know, watch targeted malware at this point. I haven't investigated it either, but, uh, you know, I'm sure somebody's got that kind of brewing here somewhere. And, uh, We'll see how that goes. So, all right. Well, interesting story. Uh, so let's take a little bit of a uh, quick look at the uh, internet activity for the last week or so here. And uh, first, looking at the top ten most probed ports. This is activity from July 11th yesterday. You know, I think this is pretty consistent with what we had been reporting for some time now. First of all, port 23, significant amount of probing activity on port 23. This is associated with predominantly uh, IoT devices like security surveillance camera DVRs that expose telnet to the internet and are, you know, can be exploited just using uh, a default username and password associated with the device. Followed by 53.413 UDP, that's uh, Netis home routers. That is actually a backdoor where a script can be sent to it to uh, get the device to execute the script and become part of a botnet as well. So those are two big ones right there. Uh, we have relatively regular probing activity on port 22, TCP, 
password guessing attacks as well, followed by 443 TCP. This one, I think, uh, showed up, it moved up uh, several places, but uh, I did take a look at it. There really isn't a significant change in the profile of activity there. So 443 is, and port 80 TCP following that uh, are both regularly probed, looking for websites, uh, perhaps looking for the dark web, uh, websites that aren't cataloged in other ways. And then followed by 1911 TCP, uh, that's actually a, um, an IoT or an industrial control port that uh, has been regularly probed, but usually by uh, researchers. That doesn't mean that there aren't malicious actors out there probing it, but the most prominent probing activity tends to be associated with a research organization. Followed by 3389, that's remote desktop protocol, and uh, that's uh, regularly probed looking for uh, actually devices oftentimes with no password. And uh, so it's very important that if you use RDP that you properly lock it down. And then followed by 53 UDP, we did see some scanning activity. We'll look at that a little bit later uh, on uh, 53 being DNS, and then 445 TCP, and then 21 TCP. So looking at the top 10 most sources doing the probing, well, I think the last time I had referred to this, it was almost, uh, almost you know. Pac-Man-esque. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's a little bit, yeah, it almost looks like Pac-Man, you're right. So port 23 is obviously overwhelming. We saw more than 650,000 unique source addresses in one day. That is on July 11th associated with this. That is not the largest number. I think in the last report we reported on the order, or perhaps two weeks ago, on the order of about, I think it was 850,000 sources or so in that, in that uh, ballpark. And then followed by 53413. We'll take a look at a couple of the uh, ports here. And I'll point out, and you know, moving up in terms of the ranking, we saw 53413 move up and also 53 UDP. So we'll look at those two. First of all, looking at the scan probes and sources on port 23 TCP, uh, that is Telnet. We're looking at 90 days of activity here. And as we've been reporting, this is basically a very large botnet, predominantly of uh, security surveillance camera DVRs, multiple brands uh, on the order of about 10 different brands, but I think they generally have sort of the same roots behind them the same sort of vulnerabilities, the same basic features. Uh, I'm not sure that, it, I wouldn't be surprised if uh, some of these are actually developed or manufactured by the same organizations. Nevertheless, more recently what we've seen is we did see a little bit of a drop of activity in terms of the number of sources and the number of probes, but it seems to have climbed back up again. And we're not quite to the record level of uh, what was on the order of about 330,000 sources, but uh, we're pretty close to it up around 300,000 sources. So still within 10% of the all-time high record in terms of the number of sources that are probing in a given hour. And as I said, cumulative across the day, we've seen just in the last day in excess of 650,000 unique source addresses that are probing just on this port. And then following that, again, looking at 90 days here, scan probes and sources on port 53413 UDP. And uh, we did see a surge in activity just yesterday and it looks like the uh, actually the last uh, three days or so here where there was a surge in the number of sources, went from what was close down to about only 5,000 sources and then surged up to about 50,000 sources. So a uh, very significant surge in terms of the number of sources and then correspondingly we saw a surge in the number of probes that were on this port. And this is one where it's very simple. They just kind of spray out the packets that contain the script and then uh, see what devices actually respond to it most likely trying to uh, re, basically revitalize their, their botnet. And then uh, the last item here in, the, uh, in terms of the 
probing activity is scan sources on port 53 UDP. And this was a very brief period where we saw a significant increase in the number of sources that were doing scanning on port 53, but not so much in terms of the number of probes. I took a look at this. I, I did not really have any real strong conclusions. This may, in fact, have been associated with a uh, reflective denial of service attack of some sort that uh, somehow manifested itself in this way. Uh, that is a possibility that can happen sometimes if they you know, uh, attack a large number of addresses at a time. This didn't really look like that was necessarily the case, but um, it, nevertheless, it did show up in terms of the number of sources. Like I said, it, we did not see a significant increase in the number of probes, so uh, it sort of raises some questions about uh, you know, why that actually took place. It may have, in fact, just an accident. Uh, and it did appear to originate from, uh, you know, again, these IoT devices. And by the way, when these uh, IoT botnets are used in denial of service attacks, sometimes they're used directly in denial of service attacks, uh, but they also have the capability to use reflection attacks as a, me as a mechanism. So if they happen to reside on a network that allows spoofed source addresses, they're able to spoof the source address to be the target address, send it out to DNS servers that are around the internet, and then have those reflections come back. To the extent that they are using reflective attacks, it does constrain you know, what parts of the botnet are actually useful, because good network service providers are actually providing ingress filtering, controlling that spoofing. Uh, but there are certainly ones, uh, I think I'm going to say predominantly in Asia or, or in other uh, less developed countries have the tendency to uh, be a little looser about those rules. Uh, next item here I thought would be uh, sort of an interesting thing to just take a quick look at. And what we're looking at here is actually over the past four years, the proportion of HTTPS traffic, that is uh, encrypted web traffic, versus the collective of web traffic, that is looking at port 80 and 443 together, that would be HTTP and HTTPS. So we're looking at the proportion of encrypted traffic versus the total of the web traffic. And uh, you know, over, say, in 2012, 2013, we were in the area of between 5 and 10%, say 7 to reaching up around 10% of the activity being encrypted up through, say, the mid-2014. And then starting around mid to you know, fall 2014, I think this was right around the time where uh, perhaps the heart, heart bleed was around in that in that time period or something along those lines. Maybe some kind of leaks about surveillance. Oh, uh, it may have been. Yeah. Uh, it may have been some other things related. Or, or, went to yeah, I should be, I should, yeah, I, I should have been a little more savvy about that point. But uh, yeah, so some of the leaks and recommendations around um, uh, encryption. So clearly, through the latter part of 2014 and in through 2015, there was a significant increase in the amount of encrypted web activity, about a threefold increase, uh, up to around 30%, roughly speaking. That has been sort of continuing that in that vein. Now, you can see here clearly, I think it was on December 26th, or right around December 26th, there was a significant drop in the proportion of encrypted traffic. I have no explanation for it. Uh, I'm not sure if it's actually uh, an aspect of the data that we're using for the analysis here, or if there was actually some sort of a shift in activity that, uh, that caused that to happen. But nevertheless, it looks like since then, sort of the trajectory has kind of continued to return to sort of a, at least a flat, if not an upward trend uh, in terms of the encryption. Now, I was actually a little bit surprised. I expected to see a little more encrypted web traffic, relatively speaking, but um, 
it is what it is. Oh, and by the way, I should point out, what we're looking at here is not the request to the servers, but the responses from the servers. So the intent there would really be to, hmm. what really matters is what you ask for, right? <laughs> I mean, that's not necessarily true if you're logging into a system or something along those lines, but anything that you do, any transaction that you perform after you've logged into a system, you know, you want to, I was really trying to verify that we're actually getting responses from systems and not measuring like a denial of service attack, which would be trying to flood a system perhaps, but, that's um, an interesting but not point, necessarily isn't it? valid traffic. I mean, yeah. That's an interesting point. You're talking about that the dip is somewhere around, I want to say Christmas, mm -hmm. I was right. Uh, and this is a ratio of, of encrypted to total, yeah. encrypted and non-encrypted. If someone were to, say, take down a service that did rely on encrypted traffic, that ratio would be seriously offset. Yeah, that's probably true. Um, I am not aware of any significant outages that would show in the total demographic of web traffic, but mm -hmm. uh, that would be a potentially a true thing. Okay. Absolutely. Zach, you've been quiet a little bit here, so uh, any comments or questions about any of this? Yeah, definitely. There's some really interesting data through those um, charts. It's really fascinating to see that the majority of probing and attacks are all sort of targeted towards IoT devices. Yes. And we even talked about IoT devices in a way with the, uh, you know, the watch that could be used for the ATM sort of pin guessing. And it's probably one of the areas where I think we're going to see some of the biggest growth in attacks because the devices are essentially unprotected usually. Mm -hmm. And there's very few standards around how developers have to secure their code and how they secure their traffic. Mm -hmm. So it's no real surprise to see huge data numbers and huge probes into those areas. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, the encrypted traffic trends is very interesting too. We tend to see a little more encrypted traffic at Komodo through our labs and research divisions. And one interesting thing we're actually seeing is there's a, a huge amount of the malware payloads are delivered over HTTPS because the malware writers themselves understand that there's only a certain percentage of companies that are actually you know, inspecting that traffic and doing man-in-the-middle interception. So they're using that to their advantage, again, you know, going after the small gap where they can get some leverage and delivering their payloads over HTTPS. So I think we'll see that trend keep on climbing. Yep, absolutely. So good points. And to your comment about the IoT thing, I, I absolutely agree with you. I think uh, you know folks that are working in the security industry have a tremendous opportunity to try to extend their uh, their product's portfolio into the IoT space uh, because, as you pointed out, a lot of these things are really not protected, even not even well designed and implemented at this point, and uh, they do provide some opportunities. It's a very different model than perhaps has traditionally been done because they're you know it, you, you can't really market directly necessarily to the end user. You really have to kind of appeal to the manufacturer of the products and um, you know, build a sort of a business proposition around the idea of, of um, you know, making their product better than their competitors. Yeah, and you can actually, there's another interesting example where you can tell how little the developers are thinking about this. Um, Lynx has lost control to some of their centralized servers that they use to do things like you know, maintain their home router devices and things like that, and they actually let the domain names lapse. Mm. Someone else came in and scooped them up, and now they can sort of control those devices. So it sort of just shows that right at the core, they're not really thinking about security. They're worried about other aspects of their IoT devices. Yeah. You know, I guess in uh, Linksys' defense, I think they, they are actually one that I've seen. You know, I recently bought a device, and I, I was actually, it, it passed the criteria unlike many others, 
that, uh, that I, I look for in devices. They had a unique password established for the device. They had a means to make sure that uh, there wasn't a default password associated with it. They had a uh, basically a process to make sure that it was set up in a reasonably uh, secure way. So um, that, you know, we all make mistakes. I think uh, there are perhaps uh, some, you know, different uh, situations around in those, but uh, that's uh, at least one that appears to be, you know, trying to do some of the right things. Before we so, go any further, yeah. it was TP-Link who lost those two domains. Uh, TP-Link? Yeah, not yeah. Linksys. Okay. Just well, for just Okay, fair enough. Okay. Well, very good. And, you know, uh, that's our show for today. We'd like to thank you for joining us. And if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at attthreattrack at list.att.com. And you can find AT&T Threat Track on the AT&T Tech Channel. It's on YouTube. And it's also available as an audio po podcast on iTunes. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at attbusiness. And, uh, Zach, do you happen to have a Twitter? Um, I do, actually. It's just Zach Polside. Okay. All right, very good. And, you know, Zach, uh, I'd like to thank you once again for joining us today. I really enjoyed the conversation. I think uh, you brought some uh, sort of new flavor and conversation to the show here. So uh, thanks once again for, uh, for joining us. Thank you again, guys. It's been a pleasure. <laughs> Our pleasure. And uh, thank you, Matt. No problem. Thank you, Stan. I'm Brian Rexroad. We'll be back next week with a new episode. And until then, keep your network safe. The views expressed on AT&T ThreatTrack are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.